0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington
1: Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker
2: at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zak.
0: This is Post Reports. I'm Nicole Ellis. It's Monday, February 24th. Today, Trump's visit to India. Why so many Black mayors support Bloomberg and remembering one of NASA's hidden figures.
1: Motera Stadium, the largest cricket stadium in the world, where Donald Trump and Narendra Modi are going to address a mega rally of possibly more than 100,000 people in just two hours from now.
0: Joanna Slater is the post-India bureau chief. On Monday, Trump began his tour of the world's largest democracy with a visit to the Taj Mahal. And a rally to more than 100,000 people with India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi.
3: Namaste, Trump. India
1: USA relations are no longer just another partnership, it is a far greater and
3: closer relationship. Hum sab
1: Namaste, Trump! Namaste, Trump! Donald Trump is about to address the crowd here at this newly minted stadium. It's pretty packed, and he's about to start.
2: Let me begin by expressing my profound gratitude to an exceptional leader, a great champion of India a man who works night and day for his country, and a man I am proud to call my true friend, Prime Minister Modi.
0: Trump is the first sitting U.S. president to visit the state of Gujarat. And the symbolism and
1: intention behind that move isn't lost on Trump or Modi. The rally took place in Ahmedabad, which is the largest city in Gujarat, a state in Western India. A good number of Indian Americans can trace their roots to Gujarat, which also happens to be the home state of Mohandas Gandhi, sometimes called Mahatma Gandhi, uh, the leader of India's struggle for independence. And Gujarat is extremely important to Modi. It's not just his actual birthplace, it's his political birthplace. He was the chief minister of the state, which is kind of like a governor in U.S. terms. Modi really likes bringing foreign leaders to Gujarat. He brought Xi Jinping of China, Shinzo Abe of Japan, and Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel. It's a way to showcase some of his achievements as well as the state's own history. It also
0: sounds like there's definitely been some buzz around you know, resurfacing roads, laying new sidewalks, even putting walls up. Can you tell me a little bit about how the country prepared for Trump's arrival?
1: India is really rolling out the red carpet here. So the Taj Mahal, the iconic Indian monument, was scrubbed and cleaned. The river, uh, the Yamuna River that runs behind the Taj, extra water was released into it to make sure it looked pretty and smelled nice. Some of the preparations uh, have been more controversial, including in Ahmedabad, where this rally took place, the city authorities built a six-foot wall in front of a slum along one of the routes uh, that it was possible for Trump to take. The city said the timing was a coincidence, but the people who live there don't see it that way. They say it's to hide the reality of their lives.
0: Trump and Modi have cultivated a really Interesting friendship with each other since Trump came into office.
2: When I met him for
1: the first time, he said to me, India has a
3: true friend in White House.
1: What is this relationship based on? That's a good question that I would love to ask them. (laughs) There does seem to be a genuine fondness on Trump's part for Modi.
2: Uh, We're not treated very well by India, but I happen to like Prime Minister Modi a lot. I have great admiration and I really like him. That's another thing. And he's a great gentleman and a great leader.
1: I'm told that Modi, like many talented politicians, has a way of focusing all of his his attention on you in a way that Trump may find uh, flattering. And, of course, they do share a type of politics and a worldview. They are both stridently nationalist, populist leaders who provoke polarizing responses in the electorate. They both motivate uh, their supporters through a combination of hope uh, and fear, uh, particularly of uh, outsiders. Both
2: India and the United States also understand that to keep our community safe, we must protect our borders.
0: They also are both facing controversies at home. Can you tell me a little bit
1: about that? Sure. So as we know, Trump has just emerged from the impeachment process and is beginning what will likely be a bruising election campaign. Modi, for his part, is facing the most significant show of opposition since he became prime minister in 2014. There have been nationwide protests across India over a new citizenship law, which critics say is discriminatory and unconstitutional. And Modi has been criticized uh, abroad for this law because uh, people say that it discriminates against Muslims. So it seems like Modi would benefit from some positive optics right now. Absolutely. And Trump coming here and sharing a stage with him and complimenting him on his leadership is goes a long way toward uh, endorsing Modi's policies and Modi's government. How do Indians view Trump? Is he popular there? Surveys have shown that the majority of Indians genuinely generally do have a positive view of Trump. India was one of only six countries out of about more than 30 polled where that was true. I was also curious why Indians broadly approve of Trump's handling of world affairs And I think it's actually a combination of factors. Most Indians like the United States uh, and by extension, the American president. Trump is also a celebrity, uh, which still helps. And the Trump administration has backed India up on some of its priorities, including putting pressure on Pakistan. A lot of the folks I've spoken to are not intimately familiar with Donald Trump. I know that sounds hard to believe, perhaps for an American audience, but it is true that there's a big world out there, and India is a major democracy with a lot going on, just like the U.S. It has a tendency to be self-absorbed and and kind of inward-looking. So some of the people I talk to don't know very much about Donald Trump beyond the fact that he is the American president. They see him as... A powerful man who is coming to their country and who is broadly supportive of India and its foreign policy objectives. Joanna
0: Slater is the India bureau chief for The Washington Post. Trump's trip is expected to wrap up in New Delhi, where violent clashes erupted today over Modi's controversial citizenship law. Senator Bernie Sanders had another big win in Nevada over the weekend. But former New York City mayor Michael Bloomberg is pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into the race. He'll be on the ballot starting Super Tuesday. And along the way, he's collected support from mayors all across the country.
3: No, I'll keep this. Okay, great. (laughs) Where shall I sit? Thank
0: you. Great table, too. um, Including D.C.'s black female mayor, Muriel Bowser, despite his stop-and-frisk policy, which
3: targeted Black and Latino men, and complaints about Bloomberg's treatment of women. Mike has taken responsibility and accountability for his record. He's owned up to mistakes. He's apologized. He can't change history. He can only change uh, what happens in the future. I'm Muriel Bowser, and I'm the mayor of the best city of the world, Washington, D.C. Mayor Bowser says she
0: supports Bloomberg for a lot of reasons, and she's not alone.
2: I'm formally endorsing uh, Mayor Michael Bloomberg for president. I'm certainly an excellent uh, president. He has really
3: spent a lot of his personal time focusing on transforming and supporting cities.
0: City mayors like London Breed in San Francisco and Stephen Benjamin in South Carolina have even taken leadership roles in Bloomberg's campaign for president. But as national campaign co-chair, Mayor Bowser has arguably been the most vocal, especially when it comes to defending Bloomberg against critics who say he's made sexist comments or harassed women in the past.
3: I look at allegations as just that. And I think what Mike has said is that he's used crude language. And I'm pretty sure that all of us can... Imagine Wall Street 30 years ago, male-dominated, and uh, I think we would all be very naive if we thought that a lot of crude remarks didn't happen. We invited Mayor Bowser to our studio to talk about why
0: she stands firmly behind him.
2: Yeah, so we'll like it'll be more of like just a conversation about Bloomberg. So it's not going to. turn — Finnit
0: Niropill reports on DC politics for the Post. He sat down with Bowser to find out why she supports Bloomberg for president.
3: Well, Fennett, I came to this decision um, because over the last four years, we sit in what some may say is the belly of the beast when it comes to the Trump administration, and we have had a front row seat at what this administration is doing to our democracy. And it has very real impacts on the residents of Washington, D.C. And I really believe that this election is about saving our democracy. And as I've watched this primary fight unfold, I, like many people, are dissatisfied and had been dissatisfied with the slate of candidates. And I, I was excited about Kamala Harris. We watched her exit the race, and I looked at who was left standing, and I really think that's why Mike got in it. And even at that time, I was asking a lot of people in my circle, in the city, in different places, who do you like? What do you think we're going to do? And nobody had an answer. People were all over the place. And I think that space was how um, Mike's candidacy emerged. And I think that I I know Mike, I know the good that he has done with investments all across her country and in supporting cities where millions of people live.
2: We haven't really sent a mayor to the White House in recent years. What makes a mayor a good president? What is it about the powers of and experiences of a mayor that you think uh, can contribute to the presidency?
3: The job of the mayor requires you to go across partisan bickering and partisan lines and not to succumb to gridlock that sometimes happens in politics. And so when we look at putting a president in office, we need somebody who is practical in a lot of ways and knows that they have to, to work with leaders on all levels of government and across party lines. Uh, and I think that's that's what mayors do.
2: Why do you think so many high-profile black mayors are backing Mike Bloomberg?
3: I've said from the beginning, A candidate with an urban agenda is going to be an attractive candidate for me that has experience um, dealing with complicated housing issues, school issues, is critically important. And closing the wealth gap. When we talk about displacement and gentrification that's happening in American cities, ours is no different. What we're really talking about is how we can close the wealth gap and opportunity gaps for African-Americans with their white counterparts. And that's going to take real skill and investment.
2: We're hearing from some activists and particularly from some younger African-Americans who are confused why uh, many high profile black political leaders are standing behind Mike Bloomberg, given his track record with stop and frisk and comments about uh, people of color. What what do you say to the people who are concerned?
3: Well, first of all, I hear them um, and I listen to them and I especially hear people who have direct negative experiences with stop and frisk. And I think what's important uh, is that a real agenda affecting those young men who were targeted by these practices is what everybody is looking for.
2: As president, what do you think uh, Mike Bloomberg would do to improve the lives of African Americans and what in his uh, platform is appealing?
3: Well, you know, Mike started out very strong with, and I think uh, other candidates have come along specifically talking about a Black America agenda. And the the many pillars of that plan talk about wealth generation, home ownership, creating more African-American businesses. And when I look at Mike's team, he's been able to pull together a lot of people that are, are known for big ideas.
2: Then the other big area of scrutiny for Mike Bloomberg has been about uh, his comments about women and his history of uh, of uh, his treatment of female employees. So among the allegations against Mike Bloomberg is that he's described uh, female employees as pieces of meat and uh, would say that he wanted to ha- have sex with female employees. Would you hire someone in D.C. government with similar allegations against them?
3: Um, I I think what I want to highlight is what Mike has said about his company and the culture of his company and how he holds each and every one of his employees accountable for a workplace that is non-discriminatory and where there is no harassment. I would be careful, however, as somebody who runs an organization with 37,000 people to accept every allegation that hasn't been defended, or to discuss individual employment complaints, uh, because I I know how that goes.
2: In your rise uh, to prominence in politics, have you been encountering men who made uh, crude comments, or have you had to work with uh, men who held sexist beliefs?
3: Yes. Every day. Are you kidding? You know, I think that there are a lot of people that hold sexist beliefs, you know that. And so the way to deal with them is just to work hard um, and to prove them wrong. And that has always been um, my uh, my approach uh, to, to doing that. And now that I have the opportunity to make sure that a workplace for 37,000 people is fair and that people are hired on their merit and promoted on their merit and can go to work every day and do their jobs, um, I take that. Very seriously, we have to have workplaces that are free of harassment.
2: You made a point in one of your interviews that I found really fascinating, where you said how no candidate in the Democratic primary has a perfect record on race or on criminal justice and policing. Can you expand more on that and what you meant?
3: Well, I think that it's, it's fairly obvious, Finnett, that the folks that have been around a, a long time, there's no perfect. Record. I think if you if you look at Bernie, I just was before I came in here, he had a passionate defense of his vote on the crime bill. Now, many people and a lot of attention has been focused on stop and frisk and rightly. No attention has been focused on the mass incarceration and in, cre- created by the crime bill and the former vice president and Senator Sanders were all in for it. And they haven't been held accountable for those votes at all. And I would argue that more people are in jail because of that crime bill than stop and frisk. So that's that's pretty clear. And I think recently questions have been raised about Senator Klobuchar and her record as a prosecutor, not as much as Kamala Harris. Like Kamala Harris was was driven out because she was a successful prosecutor. And so that's been uh, clear. But I don't think that certainly when it comes to criminal justice, I think that crime bill stands out in my mind as uh, one of the, the biggest things that needs more critique.
2: It seems like that's a big theme that I've been hearing from uh, African-American endorsers of Mike Bloomberg, that you, the reality is that you will have to work with people who've made mistakes in the past or if, who've taken the wrong position in the past. Because if you try and cast everyone out, then you're not going to be able to work with anybody.
3: Well, and, that, and that also, we have to, as Democrats, recognize what we're up against. So we can say that we're looking for the perfect candidate. Newsflash, you're not going to find him or her. But look at who we're up against, somebody who is going to be willing to use any tactic uh, to win. And so I think that we certainly want to respect our, our values as people. I'm not going to support a disreputable person. But I do want to make sure the person that we're getting behind has a a a program to win that's going to cast the widest net and that's going to be about policies that affect American cities and especially mine. So Fennet, you talked to Mayor Bowser.
0: I think one of the biggest outlying questions a lot of people have is this idea of Bloomberg giving money to either mayors or cities where mayors have gone out and endorsed him. When it comes to D.C., Mayor Bloomberg gave D.C. $4 million. What was Mayor Bowser's response to people who say that's a quid pro quo?
2: Right. I asked her what she thinks about that criticism, and her thought was...
3: We go after free money. And the, the notion that Bloomberg has done more for public education in Washington than the taxpayers of Washington is pretty absurd. I think our public education fund has raised over $100 million since we've begun our school transformation. So it shouldn't be a shock to anybody that cities, if they're doing a good job, go after philanthropy dollars.
0: D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser spoke with Finnett Nearpil, He reports on D.C. politics for The Post. And now, one more thing. Katherine Johnson, a Black mathematician and one of NASA's human computers in the 1960s, died Monday. She was 101. Johnson's work was largely overshadowed by her white male colleagues, and it wasn't until President Obama awarded her with the Medal of Freedom in 2015 that she became well-known.
1: Growing up in West Virginia, Catherine Johnson counted everything. She counted steps, she counted dishes, she counted the distance to the church. By 10 years old, she was in high school. By 18, she had graduated from college with degrees in math and French. As an African-American woman, job options were limited, but she was eventually hired as one of several female mathematicians for the agency that would become NASA.
0: The following year, her work was celebrated in Hidden Figures, the Oscar-nominated film starring Taraji P. Henson.
4: Catherine, have a go at it.
0: She calculated the flight path for the first space mission and the moon landing.
3: The goal point for re-entry is 2,990 miles from where we want Colonel Glenn to land. If we assume that's the Bahamas, 544 miles per hour of 46.56 degrees, 2,990. Okay, so that puts your landing zone at 5.0667 degrees north, 77.3333 degrees west, which is here, give or take 20 square miles.
4: When uh, John Glenn was to be the first astronaut to go up into the atmosphere and come back, and they wanted him to come back in a special place, And that was what I did. I I computed his trajectory. And uh, from then on, anytime they were going to compute trajectories, they were given mostly all of them to my branch. And I did most of the work on those by hand. But when he got ready to go, he said, call her. (laughs) And if she says the computer's right, I'll take it.
0: Johnson was one of the few Black women hired to do computing for the NACA, or National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. That's the federal agency that eventually became NASA.
4: You see, if you lose lose your curiosity, then you stop learning. You must. And the scientists, they say, well, what good good does it do us to go to space? Well, it, what good is it do you to stay home?
0: Catherine Johnson spoke to WHRO in 2011. She died Monday at her home in Newport News, Virginia. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Nicole Ellis. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post.